My interview with Dr. McDermott continued on, and while there wasn't enough room on this CD for these intriguing comments and personal cases, we posted these on researchtopractice.com in the RTP app, along with supplemental comments from our next speaker. As a footnote to this discussion, we should note that subsequent to these two interviews, the anti-PD-1 antibody nivolumab also received accelerated approval by the FDA for the management of advanced squamous cell lung cancer and melanoma, with essentially the same indication in melanoma as pembrolizumab. Patients with disease progression on ipilimumab and also for patients with BRAF mutant tumors also having received a BRAF inhibitor. I next met with Dr. Julie Bramer to review the current available clinical research data in lung cancer and immunotherapy, particularly the recent findings with checkpoint inhibitors. And to begin, Dr. Bramer commented on anti-CTLA-4 antibodies. Certainly, ipilimumab was the first checkpoint inhibitor approved for use in all cancers. This was approved for use in melanoma. It has shown some tantalizing effects in combination with chemotherapy for lung cancer, and it's certainly being tested in other cancers as well. It definitely has shown long-term survival effects in patients in melanoma, and we're just seeing now how it will be combined with chemotherapy and lung cancer, at least in a phase two trial in lung cancer by phasing in the treatment. So starting ipilimumab with chemotherapy after a patient received a couple cycles of standard chemotherapy for metastatic disease, it did seem to improve immune type of progression-free survival, particularly in patients with squamous cell cancer. And a large phase three trial has recently completed using that type of regimen and comparing it head-to-head with chemotherapy in patients with squamous cell cancer. And we'll see whether or not the three-drug combination will improve survival on top of standard chemotherapy. Now, that trial, obviously, it's kind of hard to say too much about it because of the limited numbers, but were prolonged responses observed, as has been seen with the anti-PD-1 agents? Well, patients were allowed to continue on ipilimumab in maintenance therapy, So yes, prolonged responses were seen. However, I'm not sure about the number of prolonged responses. Certainly, we did not see the duration of response that we saw with PD-1 or PD-L1 antibodies. And I know also there have been, I guess, limited studies with just ipilimumab alone without chemotherapy that were not very encouraging. So most of the data from a single agent, in lung cancer anyway, comes from tremolimumab. It's another anti-CTLA-4 antibody. And in that study, it was a maintenance study of tremolimumab in lung cancer, and that did not show a significant response rate at all. And so further development was stopped at that time. Certainly, it's being resurrected now and being combined with pdl one antibodies. But for ipilimumab itself, really not much single-agent data, at least in lung cancer. There is some single-agent data in kidney cancer. And you know, as well as I do, most of the single-agent data has been in melanoma. And in terms of the decision to study this in the phase three setting with chemotherapy, what's that based on? And to what extent, if any, has there been any concern about corticosteroid use as part of pre-medications with chemotherapy? So the corticosteroid use with chemotherapy and trying to combine checkpoint inhibition 
does seem to be counterintuitive. The steroid use can affect the lymphocytes and certainly could be counterproductive. However, we haven't really seen that from a patient perspective, but certainly could be dampening some of the immune effects. But we'll see in this larger study to see if that really is relevant or not. Certainly, we're looking at combining these type of antibodies, such as PD-1 or PD-L1, with chemotherapy, and we'll see if that affects. Before we get into the anti-PD-1 data, in melanoma, there's been a lot of excitement about the combination of anti-CTLA-4 inhibitors and anti-PD-1. Is the thinking in lung cancer also that maybe this is where the anti-CTLA-4 is going to fit in? I think the answer would be potentially. Certainly, we have looked at combining nivolumab with ipilimumab in lung cancer, and I think we're still working on trying to get the schedule as well as dosing correct. It does not seem, at least in the initial phase one data that was presented at ASCO this past year, we did not see an increase in response rate in patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer when combining nivolumab with ipilimumab. And I'm not sure whether that was due to toxicity or inactivity. So, How many patients were looked at? It's very small, 15 to 30 patients in each cohort. And the responses really weren't any higher than nivolumab by itself. But we're going back to see if you give ipilimumab in a less frequent schedule to see if that's easier to tolerate and see if we can see increased responses, i.e. keep patients on therapy for a longer period of time. I think anecdotally, we've seen some amazing responses where tumors quickly melt away with the combination, but we can see that with nivolumab as well. Another combination, talking again about an anti-CTLA-4 antibody, is tremolimumab plus the anti-PD-L1 antibody. They have shown to be able to give both antibodies in full doses safely and seen some interesting activity in lung cancer. And again, that's also in a phase one trial, and we'll see in larger cohorts if we see an increase in response. So let's talk about the various agents being studied, the main ones anyhow, in terms of anti-PD-1, anti-PD-L1. What are the agents we have the most data with, and what do we know right now about efficacy and toxicity of each one of these? So starting with the PD-1 antibodies, most known is nivolumab, which is an anti-PD-1 antibody, as well as pembrolizumab, which is also an anti-PD-1 antibody. Both of these antibodies have shown consistent responses in non-small cell lung cancer, ranging in the high teens to low 20s. Particularly with pembrolizumab, they have been able to show that using PDL1 staining on tumor cells, if you look at patients with high PDL1 staining on their tumor cells, which would include intensity and percentage of cells, these patients have a higher response rate than those patients who do not. We are also seeing consistent long-term disease response or disease control. The median disease control time would be 17 months for nivolumab, and we're seeing very similar data with pembrolizumab. Also exciting with nivolumab is that 
We're now reporting three-year survival rates in the original phase one trial of the non-small cell lung cancer cohort. The three-year survival rate is an 18%. And in most trials, we're not even ever reporting this, and now we're able to report this with immunotherapy and lung cancer. So I think that is the highlight of all of these therapies is that these sort of responses can be long-lasting. And just in terms of pembrolizumab, which of course has now been approved for melanoma and nivolumab, in terms of lung cancer, any way indirectly at this point that you can separate them out, either in terms of efficacy or tolerability? In my mind, they're very similar. I think they are looking at different ways of dosing, trying to figure out whether or not a patient needs to continue on therapy until progression, or if you can stop therapy at a particular time if you've had a very good response. All of this is certainly being worked out within both camps, nivolumab as well as pembrolizumab. Certainly, in my mind, there's not that much of a difference. I mean, we're seeing consistent response rates in both, consistent durable responses off therapy for both, very similar toxicity rates. Certainly, nivolumab was first out of the gate and first reported with phase one data, and certainly there was a learning curve seen there, particularly when it came to pneumonitis, basically from monitoring for symptoms for pneumonitis as well as treatment of pneumonitis, which I think has helped with the development of multiple different antibodies in this space. Kind of wondering, you know, there are a lot of issues that go on in terms of whether a drug gets approved, but just at a clinical level, whether or not, you know, you wish, I think there are a lot of oncologists in practice wish that they had one of these agents available right now. Do you think these agents should be available, they should be approved based on the amount of data that's available right now? Would you want to use it? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I definitely would want to be able to use this in the majority of my patients, certainly in patients who have been previously treated. I would like to have phase three data in hand, but I think with the responses and the duration of response that we're seeing in a group of patients with lung cancer, that it would be great to have this in clinic now, because certainly we have patients who we did not expect to respond to anything, and they responded to this therapy. And certainly these patients are alive because of this antibody and living great lives. In melanoma, there's been kind of an interesting paradigm, you know, particularly in the BRAF-positive tumors, where obviously you have BRAF inhibitors and MEK inhibitors, et cetera, but because of the potential for long-term responses, a lot of people think about using immune checkpoint therapy as first-line therapy as long as the patient doesn't, you know, quote, need a response, you know, symptomatic, high-volume disease. Do you think that lung cancer is kind of ready for that kind of paradigm? I think more testing needs to be done to be able to find that subset of patients that would greatly benefit from this in the first-line setting. I think the PD-L1 story, using that as a biomarker, certainly is the first step towards that. But I think that it's not going to be the whole story in order to say that for a particular patient, this is best to start out with compared to chemotherapy versus, say, a targeted therapy. Well, I mean, you know, just to be the devil's advocate a little bit, with chemotherapy, you know, you're still looking at a survival of a year or a year and a half. Even if you take all comers in terms of anti-PD-1 without refining it down, you still see responses that are very long-lived. If you don't need to get chemo right away, why not take a shot at it? 
Right. But certainly there can be some side effects that you would want to avoid. But unfortunately, right now we can't predict those. But overall, like you said, chemotherapy tends to have more side effects than this type of therapy. But I think that, you know, the most data is out there for chemotherapy, at least in the first line setting. But that's where I would encourage patients to enroll onto a clinical trial or practices being able to open these type of trials to really get at the answer to this question. What about tolerability, at least in terms of the anti-PD-1 agents? I think everybody's kind of familiar now with IPI, at least from melanoma, although IPI and chemotherapy, I guess, is another issue if that actually happens. What about anti-PD-1? What are the data in terms of the side effects and toxicities? Well, in general, this class of agents have a low toxicity rate, particularly a low grade 3 and 4 toxicity rate, where the rate of that is 10 to 15 percent. So in general, this is easy to tolerate. However, if you do have patients develop these significant side effects, for us anyway, as lung cancer docs, we're not used to taking care of these type of toxicities. So you do have to become familiar with not being afraid to hold this type of therapy, as well as being able to use steroids in order to control these type of toxicities. And certainly just becoming familiar I tell my patients anything that ends in itis, these sort of therapies can cause, not very commonly, but certainly we have to watch out for that. I've come up with a checklist that we go through every time with the patient, and so in order to alert the patient as well as the staff that we may need to investigate this further, and again, most of these patients are on clinical trials. What are the toxicities and the incidence of them? So for the PD-1 or PDL one inhibitors, the majority of toxicities really relate to fatigue, but the fatigue is typically grade one or maybe grade two, and that occurs about in the 20% range. Grade three and four fatigue occurs maybe 2% of the time, and then the most common toxicity after that is rash and pruritus. Some of the PDL1 antibodies have seen an incidence of fevers after infusions, particularly within the first cycle, but that is less common with the PD1 antibodies. Certainly both antibodies you can see low-grade diarrhea, and again, it's not very common to cause grade three or four diarrhea, which occurs again in the single digit rate. But other less common toxicities that you have to be alerted for, certainly these antibodies rarely can cause significant uveitis or inflammation of the eye. Certainly pneumonitis can be caused, and the pneumonitis rate in general is in single digits, five to maybe 8% lumping grades, and rarely grade three or four pneumonitis. Again, colitis in grade three and four, again, is less than 10%. And then thereafter, you can also see a autoimmune hepatitis, again, a low incidence of significant hepatitis. You can also see arthritis, again, significant arthritis is in the single digit rate. Probably a little bit more commonly, you can see thyroid abnormalities. We can either see just frank hypothyroidism, or first patients can develop hyperthyroidism, and then their thyroid burns out over time and patients become hypothyroid. We can rarely, again, 1% of the time, see hypopituitarism. 
And also patients can develop type 1 diabetes on this as well, but certainly these are the rare patients, but it's something to watch out for. And what about the anti-PD-L1 agents? What are the agents that have been studied and what do we know in terms of their effects? So the one that was recently published, the data was recently published by Dr. Herbst and colleagues in the Nature Journal is the MPDL3280A antibody, which is an anti-PDL1 antibody. Interesting response rates were published in bladder cancer, head and neck cancer. They saw responses in various other cancers, but most significantly, again, they were seeing a 23% response rate in lung cancer and consistent responses in melanoma as well. They also saw a roughly 13% response rate in kidney cancer. In general, at least per reported, the PDL1 antibody may have less grade 3 and 4 toxicities than some of the reported data for the PD1 antibodies, but certainly very similar side effects, mainly, again, fatigue. In this data set, they did see fevers after infusion, certainly saw some rash as well as diarrhea. But that's very exciting data to see this shown consistently. Also, the compound Medi-3476, this PDL1 antibody has been looked at in lung cancer in a phase one trial and shown very similar consistent activities with response rates in the teens in lung cancer and similar responses in squamous as well as non-squamous. And that's seen across the board with both the PD1 and PDL1 antibodies. What about the patients with tumor mutations, with driver mutations in lung cancer, of course, EGFR and ALK comes to mind. What do we know about checkpoint inhibitors in those patients? And what's the thinking about sort of how targeted therapy and immune therapy might work together in these patients? So for the patients with driver mutations, certainly the most data that we have are in patients with EGFR mutations, and we are seeing responses in these patients. The response rates, though, are more around the 10% range. We certainly see responses in KRAS mutation positive tumors as well. This response tends to be a little bit higher. This gets to the data on smoking and how that can relate to responses, both in the pembrolizumab data as well as in the MPDL3280A data that was published. Consistently, patients who have a history of smoking or who currently smoke have a higher response rate than those patients who never smoke. Theoretically, the thought is that patients who have a smoking-related tumor have higher mutation rates compared to patients who never smoked and have a solitary driver mutation causing their tumor growth and metastasis. But again, we are seeing patients who have EGFR mutations, and those patients can respond. Certainly, we are looking at combining these sort of antibodies with drugs like erlotinib, also drugs like crizotinib. The thought potentially, if you combine it early on, you'll have a release of antigen that can help allow the T cells to or dendritic cells or other cells take these proteins up, present it to the T cells, and drive increased immune response. However, we have yet to see this in a large clinical trial. Certainly, we know, based on data again presented at ASCO this past year, that nivolumab can be combined with erlotinib safely. 
other groups are looking at combining PD-1 or PDL one antibodies with these TKIs as well. For ALK patients, we don't have a whole lot of data. You know, this is a smaller group of patients, so a lot of this data has not been culled out in a lot of these trials. And some of these older trials, the ALK translocation wasn't even known at the time, and so a lot of that data just was not there in some of these trials. But I think as data matures, we will be able to get more information on this, and people are looking at combining crizotinib or other ALK inhibitors with PD-1 or PDL one antibodies. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was reading a paper, I can't remember which one it was, where they were looking at checkpoint inhibitors with EGFR mutations, and they were talking about one patient who had a great response, but was a patient with an EGFR mutation who was also a smoker. I was trying to figure out the biology of that situation, but... That's a bazillion-dollar question. Right. <laughs> so another sort of generic issue about these checkpoint inhibitors and immune therapy in general is sort of measurement of response and the timing of response. I think a lot of us in the past have thought about, you know, immune therapy taking a long time to work. And yet, particularly for the anti-PD-1 agents, it seems like it actually happens fairly quickly. What do we know about that? I think in the studies across the board, the majority of the responses, or at least half the responses, occur within the first eight to 10 weeks. And that really was a surprise to most of us. Like you said, historically, the thought was that immune type of response is going to take a long time. So certainly we're learning a lot more that we don't have to be that patient with the immune therapy responses. Certainly criteria has been developed by Dr. Walchek and colleagues that have worked with these type of agents in melanoma for a long time. It's sort of like the, I've heard the term pseudo-progression. Is basically, what, when imaging or physical exam, the tumor is getting bigger, but actually it's just an immune response? So on clinical trials, we have seen an increase in response in some of these tumors, and biopsies have shown that there is an increase in T-cell infiltrate. And so the thought is that the T-cells are migrating towards the tumor, infiltrating the tumor, causing it to grow, per se, but then recede over time. And so that, another way to say, is pseudoprogression. Certainly, you know, the majority of us, when we're treating patients with chemotherapy or even erlotinib or crizotinib, we expect these tumors to just decrease in size over time. We don't expect them to grow. And so if we're seeing growth, at least in patients with chemotherapy, we take them off of therapy. But for immunotherapy in a subset of patients, if they're doing clinically well, you have to sit back and wait another couple of months for repeat scans or even a month for a repeat scan to see if things are then decreasing in size or at least stabilizing out. Certainly, if patients are doing clinically well, you can do that. If they're not doing clinically well, then you have to think about taking them off immunotherapy. What about the issue of flare? Does it exist? And, you know, in a way, what you're talking about, I don't know if that's considered a flare or not, but I guess true disease flare. We haven't seen that per se. It's been usually associated with these T cell infiltrates. I'm sure it can happen, particularly if you're taking patients off of uh, prior therapy that's keeping at least some of the growth under control. But we haven't seen that as much, at least in lung cancer anyway. And you were talking before about PD-1 as a marker for a response. Can you talk a little bit more about the numbers that are out there and 
Globally, my understanding is that there definitely have been useful clinical responses. Actually, Corey Langer presented a patient who somehow got on a trial with very little PD-1 expression who had a great response. What do we know about this in terms of prediction of benefit, and how is it being incorporated into the criteria to get into trials? A lot depends on the agent. So each antibody, either PD-1 or PDL one antibody, is being developed with a biomarker that is targeting PDL one Typically, these are IHC assays, immunohistochemistry assays. And depending on the antibody that is being looked at to stain for PDL1, the antibody is either looking at tumor cell expression of PDL1 or it's looking at tumor immune infiltrating cells and whether or not those cells are expressing PDL1. So depending on the antibody depends on what they're testing regarding what this antibody is staining for. Also, at least in most of the data that's been published, if you have a very intense staining tumor, either in tumor cells or tumor infiltrating cells, again, depending on the antibody, the response rate is increased, at least with the MPDL3280A data. Again, that was published in the Nature Journal. They saw if you looked at a IHC score of three, looking specifically at tumor immune infiltrating cells, this higher score was related to a response rate in the 80% range compared to patients who had a lower score or a score of zero. But again, they did see patients respond if they had a zero score in the IHC score that they used in this manuscript. Again, with pembrolizumab, it's the same thing. Looking at PDL1 staining in tumor cells, the more intense or the higher percentage of cells staining for PDL1, the higher response rate. And these response rates were more in the 40% plus range. But again, there are a subset of patients, even in that group, that if their tumor did not have PDL1 expression, they could respond. So depending on the trial at this point depends on whether or not they're specifically looking at using that as an eligibility criteria. And it's not consistent right now. I think most of the first line studies in lung cancer are specifically only including patients with PDL1 positive tumors, but other trials in the second line setting or beyond are not specifically using that. So really trying to take a look at on top of PDL1, what other markers might be used to increase or predict response. I think in the end, it's probably going to be a combination. And at least in the clinic, I tell my patients, I honestly don't care about your PDL1 status. So a lot of patients are even coming with PDL1 staining on their tumor from outside vendors. And I can't use that to get them on a clinical trial if PDL1 positivity is required. These have to be tested with that company's specific antibody. And a lot of my trials that we're running currently do not require PDL1 status in order to get onto the trial. However, we are looking at this retrospectively. What are the contraindications to using checkpoint inhibitors and anti-PD-1, anti-PD-L1 agents? You know, one that there's been a lot of discussion about has to do with underlying autoimmune disorders. 
Yes, right now, patients with significant autoimmune disorders are not allowed on these type of clinical trials, particularly, for example, patients with active rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, active Crohn's disease, or autoimmune colitis. Certainly, those patients would not be patients to allow on this type of trial. Most of these therapies do exclude patients if you have active hepatitis or even HIV disease. And certainly, there may be studies in the future looking at giving patients, these types of patients, this type of antibody. But the big concern, particularly for patients with a history of autoimmune disease, is that you can make those type of diseases worse. I have seen patients who either specifically did not tell us about a history, we didn't find it in the medical records, or they didn't have an idea that that scaly rash was actually psoriasis, and they went on to a clinical trial and their autoimmune disease was unmasked or became more evident. Can you talk about some of the trials that are going on right now? that you're most interested in seeing the results in, both trials that are nearing reporting and trials that are going to take a longer time? We're most excited, at least, to see some of this phase three data comparing these type of therapies head-to-head with chemotherapy in the second-line setting and beyond, and then in the first-line setting, comparing it head-to-head to chemotherapy as well. But I think for the future, the excitement is how can we really improve the response rate of these types of therapies to make it more applicable to more lung cancer patients or patients with other diseases. And so trying to combine these type of checkpoint inhibitors with other inhibitors or other types of therapies, such as combining it with radiation, combining it with targeted therapies, potentially combining it with vaccines. I think all this really points to where we're going in the future with this type of therapy. One other tumor I wanted to ask you about, you were talking about bladder and head and neck, but I know there's going to be a presentation at the ASH meeting of an anti-PD-1 agent in Hodgkin lymphoma, and it looks like they saw some pretty good responses. Any thoughts about the biology of what's going on there and whether there are other, I mean, certainly that's not a tumor I think about in terms of external carcinogenesis, in terms of whether there are other sort of immune-related tumors that maybe would be helped by these kinds of strategies. Absolutely. I think they're looking at this in leukemia as well as myeloma and certainly, you know, may be applicable. However, a lot of the data is extremely immature and we just have to wait and see. But like you said, it's very exciting to see some responses with immune therapy and Hodgkin's disease.